Uh, well, good morning again, and uh, welcome, especially if you're with us for the first time today. We hope it might be the first of many times that you're able to join us. And uh, it's lovely for us to be together as we support the Antors and as we seek to encourage each other and as we pray together and as, above all, we hear God's word. And we are in the book of Job. We've just heard that reading from chapters 40 and 41, which is really the second part of God's climactic speech to Job. And I want to start with what I think is the big puzzle of these chapters, namely, why are they here? Um, why are they necessary? Given all of the things that we heard God say last week, what do these chapters add? Uh, what is it about the way Job responded last week that God thinks is still insufficient so that he made the decision, I need to keep speaking I need two more chapters of questions. I need to ask Job. Uh, I'll just do a little recap. In some ways, I'm conscious that for some of us, this may well be our first sermon in this series. Um, we know in this book of Job, we know that Job himself is both a godly man and a great man. He's godly in the sense that he's blameless and upright. He fears God. He shuns evil. The opening chapters of the book tell us that. But he's great in the sense that his prosperity and wealth are just unparalleled. The greatest man among all the people of the East. We know as well that Job has suffered and he has suffered greatly. Uh, bankruptcy, bereavement, his own body wasting away. And, and it's kind of a depth of suffering that is as extreme in the opposite direction as his previous greatness had been. Um, as readers of the book, we know that Job's suffering has come about really because of a test by Satan, whose authority to strike at Job was given to him by God. Uh, Satan was convinced that if only Job could be made to suffer, then he would curse God. Now, he hasn't done that. Uh, not even when his own wife was whispering in his ear that he should but because Job was not in any way privy to that heavenly conversation between God and Satan, his great puzzle through the book, and not in some merely intellectual manner, but really viscerally from his gut, this is the thing he agonised over and anguished over more than anything else. His great puzzle in the book is how God is treating him in all this. He longs to understand what God is doing with him and why. Because his experience of life in this world is that God is treating him as his enemy, and yet he's not God's enemy. And we know that, and Job knows that, but then why is he suffering? Now, his friends are no help to him at all in this. Uh, they are convinced that Job must be in error. They've got a very simple kind of view of the way God works in the world uh, for them. Uh, God neither condemns the innocent nor overlooks the guilty. And therefore, if Job is suffering, he must have sinned and God is simply punishing him in the way that the wicked deserve. And we know that's not the case. But again, then, why is he suffering? That's the great issue of this book. Now, two weeks ago, uh, chapter 28, it was as if that story of the book of Job kind of went on pause for a moment as we heard that great ode to wisdom and understanding. And uh, we, we learned that when it comes to our human search for wisdom, the really deep wisdom about how the world works and why it works the way that it works, it, it really is an impossible quest for us. 
We can't do it. We can't find it because we are the creatures, not the creator. Now, God knows the way to wisdom. God knows where understanding dwells because he is the creator, not the creature, but, but not us. And wisdom for us, therefore, consists in being rightly oriented towards God, the creator. As the creatures he has made in the world that he rules for us, to fear God is wisdom and to shun evil, that is understanding. And then last week, uh, chapter 38, we heard God finally break his silence and he spoke to Job directly. And at long last, it seemed that there might be some kind of answers given to him, some kind of resolution. Although it was perhaps not quite the resolution Job was looking for, because in fact, rather than answering all of Job's questions, it turns out that God had some questions for Job. Questions that he insisted Job answer. And they were important questions, but they were not comfortable questions. Because their goal was to give Job a much deeper knowledge of God's wisdom to rule this world. A much deeper knowledge of God's greatness, of God's power, of God's eternal nature. The establisher of the earth's foundations. The measurer of its dimensions. The shutter of the ocean, the commander of the morning. The keeper of the clouds. The designer of the stars. The feeder of lions, the architect of the ostrich, the owner of the ox, the outfitter to the warhorse. And Job was rightly humbled by God's questions and uh, he answered God. We heard this last week in chapter 40, verse 4. He said, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I, I'll put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I've got no answer. I spoke twice, but I will say no more. And surely as we hear Job's response, we think to ourselves, this must be enough. Clearly, Job is now a changed man, isn't he? He's conceded the point that he spoke in ignorance about matters that were completely above his pay grade. He's declared that he will speak no more. But you see, God is not done yet. He doesn't think the matter is yet settled as far as God is concerned it just seems that there is still something lacking in Job's response, in Job's understanding. Still something insufficient in what he has said that means God decides, I will keep asking you questions, Job. And so that first verse of the passage we've just read in chapter 40, verse 6, Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm, Brace yourself like a man, I will question you and you will answer me. And it's exactly the same introduction that we heard last week, isn't it? The same Lord, the same storm, the same challenge for Job to brace himself and get ready. A whole new set of questions which God will ask and demand that Job answer. And my question is, why? Why are these chapters necessary? 
What do they add to all of the things we heard God say in chapters 38 and 39? And what new spiritual insight does Job come to that he didn't yet show in his answer at the start of chapter 40? Do you see the kind of issue we're getting at here? Well, uh, the key challenge is laid out for us in uh, verse 8 when God says to Job, Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? I think it's in a verse like this one that we, we really see the whole framework within, within which Job and his friends have been thinking about things. It's just completely wrong. Because I think for them, um, the matter of God's justice and Job's innocence, that is really a zero-sum game. Uh, what I mean by that is if either one of these things is to be upheld, it must come at the expense of the other. So for Job's friends, for example... Uh, They insist that just because God is just, therefore Job must be guilty. Job has declared that because he is innocent, therefore God has been unjust. And God now challenges him about that directly. Is Job really going to discredit God's justice? Is he really going to try and justify himself? and defend his innocence, but show God being in the wrong? That is not an accusation that God is willing to let stand. Uh, Job may well be innocent. In fact, we know that he is. But God is not unjust. And so he goes on, verse 9. Job, have you got an arm like God's? Can your voice thunder like his? Then adorn yourself with glory and splendor and clothe yourself in honor and majesty and unleash the fury of your wrath. Look at all who are proud and bring them low. In other words, Job, if you think you can be my equal, if you think you have my power and authority, if you think you can clothe yourselves in my splendor and my glory, that I carry as the creator and sustainer of the world, then by all means, go for it. Let your majesty be known to all, Job. Take up the task of keeping moral order. Let your anger be poured out upon the wicked, that they might be brought low by your judgment. And if you can do all that, Job, you won't need me anymore, says God. In fact, verse 14, he says, I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. Uh, I hesitate to use such a silly example, but if you know the movie, uh, this is all a little bit reminiscent of Bruce Almighty, isn't it? It's an absurd movie. If if it comes on TV, don't watch it. I mean, you can watch it, but it's... It's a silly movie, but, you know, the main character, Bruce Nolan, uh, he's faced such a disappointing series of setbacks in life And he he challenges God directly about the way that he runs the world. And so God, in the serene figure of Morgan Freeman, comes to him and hands him, if you like, the keys of the kingdom. He gives to Bruce the power of the Almighty to see what he will do with it. Of course, unsurprisingly, things deteriorate very quickly. Because he doesn't have the wisdom to carry that power. 
and he doesn't have the power to carry that responsibility. And neither do you. And neither do I. And neither does Job. And then in order to clinch his case, God really introduces to the discussion two key pieces of evidence. Perhaps if we were in a courtroom, we'd call them Exhibit A and Exhibit B. I don't know if that's actually what people say in courtrooms, but on TV, courtroom, in TV courtrooms, that's what they say. Exhibit A and Exhibit B. These two creatures, Behemoth and Leviathan. Um, their significance, I think, is indicated at least in part by just the, the amount of time God speaks about them. So last week, chapter 39, we had all those descriptions, all those animals, and the longest description was seven verses for the warhorse. Now in these chapters, we've got 10 verses for Behemoth and 34 for Leviathan. So th there is clearly something climactic going on here. But even beyond a simple verse count, just the descriptions themselves make it clear that these two creatures are in a category and class all of their own. And so of Behemoth, it is said in chapter 40, verse 19, it ranks first among the works of God. You line them all up, the one at the front, Behemoth. Uh, in chapter 41, verse 33, it's said of Leviathan, there is nothing on earth is its equal a creature without fear. Uh, those who follow these things um, know that on, on Wednesday night there was a very one-sided game of football, uh, two teams that were not evenly matched at all. And if you're a Queensland supporter like I am, it was not a lot of fun to watch. And I did get the obligatory text message the other day from a New South Wales supporter that said he woke up at 5.10, or as Queensland supporters know, 50 to 6. So there you go. Um, the next day, New South Wales coach Brad Fittler, he was uh, very generous. He assured everyone that Queensland would definitely get better in game two. And maybe that's right. Only time will tell. But against these creatures, there's just no getting better for game two. This is one-sided in every way it could be. They are simply greater stronger, more powerful. They cannot be captured. They will not be tamed. They exist without rival. They are utterly defiant to every human effort to bring them under control. But who are these creatures? Uh, obviously, there, there's a lot in both descriptions that sounds like they're some kind of animals, like behemoth, eats grass, it's got strength in its loins and belly, it's got a tail that sways, it's got powerful limbs, it hides under the leaves of the lotus plant, it's clearly comfortable in water, even a raging river. Uh, the leviathan is immensely strong and yet graceful in form, its mouth is filled with fearsome teeth, its back is like an impenetrable wall of scales. Even a sword can't pierce it, its chest is hard, it thrashes around, it churns the water up like a boiling cauldron. This is poetry, and, and granted that it's poetry, as people have looked at these descriptions and they've sat back and tried to go, I wonder what animals these could possibly describe. It's widely been held that Behemoth is perhaps a hippopotamus and, and maybe Leviathan is a crocodile. And there's elements of, of the descriptions that you kind of go, yeah, I can see that. And they were fearsome creatures in the ancient world. 
I think there's probably two big problems with understanding them that way, though. First of all, if these descriptions are really meant to be just of two animals, uh, even two fearsome animals like the hippo and the croc, I think it's hard to see what does that really add to what we heard in chapter 39 last week? Uh, if the point of that chapter was to show God's complete sovereignty, his complete mastery over a representative sample of, of the animal kingdom, I mean, is the point of these chapters simply to make clear that actually he forgot to mention these two other animals that he also rules over? I mean, you may as well come back in chapter 45 that doesn't exist and say, look, I also look after the kangaroo and the koala. It just... If that's the case, th these chapters don't really add anything new to what we heard last week. It's just more of the same. But that's not the way they read, is it? These chapters do add something new. And Job's response at the end of these two chapters is a significant development of, to the way that he responded at, at the start of chapter 40. I think the second big problem with saying that behemoth is the hippo and leviathan the crocodile is that it overlooks all the details in these descriptions that really go completely beyond the way that animals are normally described. Uh, behemoth's tail, for example, it sways like a cedar, like a tree. Its, its bones are tubes of bronze. Its limbs are like rods of iron. Leviathan kind of flashes of, of flaming fire come out of its nostrils and smoke and mouth, and it just... Uh, its eyes are like the rays of the dawn. The terror of these descriptions completely transcends the normal way that animals are described, doesn't it? There was nothing like this in chapter 39 in all the animals that were listed there, even the, the untamable ox. There's nothing kind of mythical, if I can use such a word, about those descriptions in chapter 39. See, what is spoken of here lifts these creatures to a whole new level to something, uh, we might say, beyond the existence of mere mortals, even to powers that are cosmic and supernatural. And yet, we must notice that both of these creatures are completely subservient to God. Did you notice that? As we went through, there's such kind of frightening descriptions, you could almost overlook it. But uh, chapter 40, verse 15, God says to Job, look at behemoth, which I made along with you. Verse 19, yes, it, it ranks first among the works of God, but its maker can approach it with its sword. What he says in relation to Leviathan is even more extraordinary. Chapter 41, verse 9 any hope of subduing Leviathan is false. The mere sight of it is overpowering. No one is fierce enough to rouse it. Well, who then can stand against me? In other words, as big and as frightening and as thoroughly unapproachable as Leviathan is, and he is all of those things, yet God is more. So who then are these two creatures, behemoth and leviathan? Like the animals, they are made by God. They are completely under his sovereign rule. But more than the animals, they are fearsome and terrifying to people. And they are completely beyond any human control. So they sit somehow in that middle space, way beyond us, way below God. 
And, and perhaps by this point, we begin to realize that behemoth and Leviathan really represent cosmically and supernaturally the same kind of role that is played by Satan in the beginning of the book. Completely beyond Job's ability to resist or to oppose, when Satan struck him, he was powerless. He suffered terribly. But he was always completely under the sovereign rule of God and he was never able to strike at Job even one tiny little bit more than God allowed him. Now, if that understanding is correct, I think it, it, it not only makes what God says here a, a proper climax to these whole four chapters, I, I think it also makes sense of Job's greater response at the start of chapter 42 when you compare it to the one that he made at the start of chapter 40. See, God's goal in these speeches to Job has really been twofold. Uh, on one hand, he has wanted Job to understand something about himself. On the other, he has wanted Job to understand something about him, about God. Uh, just as John Calvin once wrote that true wisdom consists in two things, knowledge of God and knowledge of the self. You see, Job's answer at the start of chapter 40, it showed that he'd really only learned half the lesson. He, he'd learned about himself. Remember chapter 40, verse 4 that we looked at earlier? I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I'll put my hand over my mouth. But there was nothing in that answer about the greatness of God, was there? It was just about the unworthiness of Job. But the greatness of God is the new thing that Job now freely acknowledges at the start of chapter 42. He says, chapter 42, verse 2, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. That's a funny combination of words there in verse 5, isn't it? He's heard about God in the past with his ears, but now he says he's seen God with his eyes, even though what he's been doing is actually been listening to God's words with his ears. But somehow it, it just seems that God's words have painted for Job such a vivid and such a stunning picture of his absolute mastery his sovereign control, not just of the natural physical world, chapters 38, 39 last week, but also chapters 40 to 41 today, the, the rulers and the authorities and the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And this has made such a big impression on Job that it is as if he has now come to see God in a completely new light. So what do we do uh, with these chapters today from our vantage point on this historical side of the Lord Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection? How do we see these truths play out even more clearly through Christ than what Job came to understand as he listened to God speak to him on this day from the storm? Simply put, in almost every way, we see it more clearly in Christ. 
Because you see, these chapters make clear that in the world which is sovereignly ruled by God, which, by the way, is the only world that exists, but in the world which is sovereignly ruled by God, even powerful forces of spiritual evil have their place. That's just how powerful God is. That that is the world he rules. And these powerful forces of spiritual evil are terrifying to us. They are utterly beyond our control. But the God who made all things is the sovereign Lord of all and they are always under his control. And is that not the very thing we see all of the time in the ministry of Jesus? He could calm the chaotic storm with a word. He could dispel sickness wherever he found it. Time and again, he drove out demons, tying up the strong man so that he could come in and steal the strong man's possessions, bringing people back to God. Most of all, of course, we see it in Christ's suffering and his shameful death upon the cross. In the whole of human history, can you think of an event that would outdo that one? As a moment where it looked like Satan and all the powerful forces of spiritual evil had finally got the better of God, had finally triumphed. Where it looked like God had perhaps really lost his sovereign control. And the Son of God now lies in a tomb. But even there, the the powerful forces of spiritual evil had their proper place in the world that is sovereignly ruled by God. Because it was by the death of his own son that God was bringing an end to evil. It's by the death of God's own son that God was bringing about salvation and forgiveness and eternal life for everyone who trusts in him. And so even more than Job, we can be assured that God sovereignly rules, even over spiritual evil. Which means the question for us, really, and in the context of this book of Job, we might say most of all, perhaps, the question for us, when we suffer. When we suffer and we can't discern a reason for it. Uh, When we suffer and our greatest longing is to turn to God and to beg him to tell us why. Will we continue to trust the one who is the sovereign? Who has demonstrated this publicly once and for all by raising Christ from the dead? Will we continue to trust the one who is the sovereign even over Satan, sin and death? Jesus said, when a strong man fully armed guards his own house, His possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armour in which the man trusted and he divides up his plunder. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for these extra chapters where you addressed Job directly and revealed to him and to us more of yourself and more of your sovereign power 
even over the powers and the rulers and the authorities and the spiritual forces of evil in this world. Terrifying to us, but always on your leash. Father, thank you that we see these things most clearly through the Lord Jesus Christ, who died and rose again. And so we pray that you would help us to be those who trust him and who know your victory. Amen.